Well, just for the past few weeks at Rock Valley Bible Church, we've been looking at the book of Revelation. And uh, one of the things I have pointed out is that much of Revelation is written in apocalyptic literature. And this is really super important for us to, to understand and to keep in our minds, um, because apocalyptic literature is different than what we're normally used to reading. And, and as such, it takes some bit of care to understand it, that we might just interpret it correctly. And over the past several weeks, I provided you with just an example of how apocalyptic apocalyptic literature works by giving you some pictures of some political cartoons which some strange pictures we see and observe and then and then place some labels on them and then you understand the meaning of the picture but but that's not the only way to understand apocalyptic literature this morning i want to put another category in your head which will will help give you a a, just a sense of how it is that we ought to approach this scripture Um, and and that is i want to put the, the category of impressionistic painting on your mind, right? For example, right? Consider this painting. You art critics out there, uh, who, who painted this? Not Van Gogh, but that's a good guess. Monet printed this. Okay, for you art critics out there, what's the name of the painting? Something good. Sailing boat? That's not sailing boat. Ryan, do you know this? I stumped Ryan Brown. That's wonderful. Huh? No, no. It is called Impression, comma, Sunrise. Impression, Sunrise. It depicts the, the port of Le Havre in France, France where, where Monet grew up. And uh, this was painted in 1872, but it was put on display publicly in 1874. And an art critic of the day, Louis Leroy was his name, he used the term impressionism to mock, he said, the, the loose and relaxed nature of the paintings. And this is, this is what the art critic said the first time that this was put on public. This is not a, a favorable uh, review. He, he wrote, a preliminary drawing for a wallpaper pattern is more finished than this seascape. <laughs> and um, it's from that critic's response, though, that impressionists coined their term. Um, if, if you look, everyone points to this painting as the first of the impressionistic paintings. But, but that's exactly really what Monet was trying to do. It's what all the impressionists were trying to do. They're not aiming to paint a realistic scene, but they created an impression on our mind. And in this case, an impression of a fleeting moment of a misty haze of a French harbor. That's what, that's what this, this painting is trying to do. Right? In other words, right? they're not trying to take a picture, but they're trying to create a sensation of a, of a scene in our hearts and in our minds right? to stir us in some way. And um, for Impression Sunrise, we see just a, a few focal points, right? We see a, a few dark boats there in the, in the foreground. We see a, a sunrise and, and a little bit of a, a reflection. And the rest of the painting really sits in background so as to create these, the, these three objects, the boats and the sun and the reflection, just to pop in the picture. And, and in fact, if you look at right, the, the closeness of these, um, um, uh, of these focal points, you just see just a few broad strokes to make that boat. 
And then even that, that sunrise reflection, just unmixed white and, and orange tones, just sort of just sort of scoop back and forth, right? Just to, just to capture an emotion, right? It's not realistic, but it's supposed to like create an impression upon us. That's, that's what impressionism is. It's just to create an impression upon us. And that's often what we see in the book of Revelation, right? Everything mentioned in the passage isn't of significance. Everything doesn't have its own special meaning. It's meant to make an impression upon us. And that's what we see in our text this morning. We see this vision of Jesus, which is, which is meant to, to really make an impression upon us. It's not reality. It's, it's not greatly symbolic. But it's given to us to make an impression of the glorious Christ that we have and that we worship. So I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Today, we're going to be looking at the last half of chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. I just want to set in our minds, read the whole thing, and then we're just going to walk through it like we always do, just taking from it what is important in the text. Revelation 1, verse 9 I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was in the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow, his His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things you have seen and the things that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The time of message comes from verse 11, when John is told to write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. The title of a message is write what you see, because that's what John was told to do. He's told to see what he sees, and he's told to write what he sees. And that's John's commission that he received from the Lord. That's my first point. John's commission to write, because that's what we see in verses 9 through 11. John's commission to write. His task was to write in a book what he saw. Now, technically, it wasn't a book. It was a, a scroll, uh, as we, we think of it. But right, that's what the, the New Testament times, that's what they wrote when they wrote longer passages. They wrote them in scrolls, right? the, the paper that was, was rolled up. Um, but yet, the sense is the same. 
Right? Write this work. Write in a book. Write it in a scroll. And John essentially here was to be an eyewitness reporter. He was supposed to see what he saw, and then he's supposed to write it down. Right? God was going to show him some things, and he was going to report what it is that he saw. In fact, Revelation, it's interesting, is filled with these statements from John that says, I saw, I saw, I saw, I saw. I mean, just consider a few. Revelation 5, verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? Revelation 7, 1. And after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Revelation 7, 2. And then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun. Revelation 8, 2. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and the seven trumpets were given to them. Revelation 9, verse 1, and the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. In fact, 30 times throughout Revelation, we just read this, that I saw, and I saw, and I saw. It's as if John is reminding us of his commission from the Lord. So there's even every time you see that, and I saw, right? We should go back even right here to verse 11. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. That's what he's called to do. He's to see and he's to write it down. Even if you look at verse 11, right? Here's his voice telling him, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and Thyatira and to Sardis and Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Now, these churches were in Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. (coughs) Here's a map of the Mediterranean Sea, see Africa and Italy and, and Greece and Turkey right there. And there in western Turkey are the seven churches, which he's writing about. I just want to give you some, some context of that. These churches were real churches with real people, just like us, meeting together to worship and hearing from God's word and, and praying together and fellowshipping with one another and working out the one another's of the, the New Testament. Right? And if we if we zoom in here, we, we see that that some of the churches are near the coast and some of them further inland. But all in all, they're really not so far from one another. Just a few days' walk would take you easily from one to the other. These cities were familiar with each other. I'm sure that trade happened between these cities. Right? And if you notice the order of the churches in Revelation 11, you see they trace a clockwise path to Ephesus and to Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. And just, just that order and how, how, how they are right there. It just, just leads you to these are real churches that John is writing to. John wants to write to these churches. It was commission. Now, up to this point, in my exposition of the, the book of Revelation, I've not said much about John because John really doesn't formally introduce himself till here, till verse 1. And he identifies himself. He says this. He says, I, John your brother, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now this verse tells us a lot about John. First off, he identifies himself as a brother, that is a fellow believer with those in the churches. And notice here he didn't pull rank. He didn't identify himself as one of the the 12 disciples who walked with Jesus. He didn't identify himself as the the disciple whom Jesus loved, though he wrote that six times in his gospel. 
He simply identifies himself as John, a brother, one who can identify with the people in these churches. And that's really what he points out in his second description, how he can identify with them. He says, I'm a partner in the tribulation. And that gives us insight not only to John, but also to those to whom he is writing. A partner in the tribulation was that John was going through difficult times. Right? We often hear teaching Revelation of the seven-year tribulation period, right? The, the seven-year period of time in the future where there's particular difficulty in the world with wars and famines and persecutions of Christians. But John says he's experiencing tribulation in his own day, the days of his writing. And he says also that those in the churches were going through tribulation in that very day as well. And I say this is a key to understanding Revelation. It's written to those who were facing tribulation. Life wasn't easy for the early Christians. They faced hostilities from the Jews for proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. And as the Jews then spoke with the Romans, they faced hostility from the Romans politically. And in their families, they, they faced hostilities there Even Jesus said, I've come not to bring peace, but I've come to bring a sword and divide families asunder, right? When some come to faith in Jesus and begin to proclaim, right, there's there's tribulation and there's hardship there. And Jesus told us the tribulation would come. We ought to expect it. Tribulation isn't just somewhere out in the future. No, tribulation is now. And John was facing it. Jesus said, in the world, you will have tribulation. Take heart, he says, I've overcome the world. And the purpose of John writing is to help those facing tribulation to overcome, to give strength to those facing hardship to endure. In fact, that's how John finishes the phrase, as I, John, your brother, verse 9, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. There's, There's tribulation coming, but there's also this kingdom and patient endurance. And I just say this, if you're in Jesus, you will face tribulation. 2 Timothy 4.10, everyone who desires to live godly in this life will face persecution, will suffer. If you're in Jesus, you'll be part of the kingdom, growing the kingdom, being part of one of God's people in the kingdom. And if you are one in Jesus, you will be strengthened to patiently endure your sufferings. And I say this is super important to understanding Revelation. I mean, I can't emphasize this strongly enough. It was written to suffering Christians. 1 Peter is appropriate for us to read in these days. Right? Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, as Darren read for us. They were facing persecution. They were suffering. And these also suffering Christians were, were there. And John is written to strengthen them and to encourage them that they might endure in the faith. They might be faithful until the end. They might be seen it's worth it to suffer. Shame for his name. This wasn't written to 21st century Christians in America who are living at ease like we are with time on our hands to try to figure out the end of the world. When is it coming? Well, who's the Antichrist? What's the sign? Where is it? We might escape the difficult times. In fact, oftentimes it is, right? You want to read Revelation, try to figure out where it is so you can dodge the difficult times. Not so the the readers. The readers were facing difficult times. They didn't have time just to sit back and try to figure out all the signs of what's happening. 
It was written to those who were in the midst of suffering. And John's message was clear. Listen, you serve a sovereign Christ. This sovereign Christ is going to judge all the godlessness in this world. And He's going to conquer. And suffering for Jesus is totally worth it. So press on. Hold fast. The Hebrew song we sang today is totally appropriate. Hold fast to your Savior. Endure until the end. Because He's coming. He's going to be victorious. I mentioned this a little bit in my call of worship this morning, but right, have you ever noticed that, that, that those who go to arenas and watch basketball games or football games, right, if, if their team is winning, how many people come? Because it's worth it. They'll go and spend a few hours because they're going to see their team win. But if the team loses, they're like, oh, they don't want to be part of that. But Jesus is winning, and so we can go and we can come and we can have confidence, endure until the end, that it will be worth it. Because He's going to judge the world. Let me ask you, right? Does a message of judgment give you joy? Does a message of judgment give you joy? Psalm 96 does. Psalm 96 verse 11 says, Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For He comes. For He comes to judge the world in righteousness. There's rejoicing with the people of God right when judgment comes. And if that's foreign to you, it's because you've probably not faced persecution. Let me just, let me just ask you this. Imagine yourself in eastern Ukraine. And you have a family there. You were living in peace. And a Russian army becomes into your city. And they enter your house with guns blazing. There you are, you with your brothers and sisters, and your mom is right there, and your dad is right there, and they shoot your dad, and they abuse your daughters, and they take your food and supplies, leave your house in ruin, windows shattered, a roof collapsed perhaps. What sort of message is going to help you at that moment? This unjust wrong that has been done to you? Won't the message help you that Jesus is coming. He's going to deal with all the ungodliness of those wicked Roman soldiers. Whatever they inflicted upon you, Jesus will inflict far more upon them. They will spend an eternity in torment. You know, if that's the message, you don't need to be hard towards the, the Russian soldiers have come. You can be soft because you know that vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Back in our prayer meeting, we're praying right through the fighter verses in uh, Romans chapter 12. It says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For he says, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And you don't overcome evil by being evil, but the whole point of Revelation, Romans 12, verse 21, is that you overcome evil with good. But the only way you can overcome evil with good is if someone's going to come behind you, like, namely God, with a big stick. You're going to hear me say in, a, in working through Revelation, I'll quote Chris Bronze here. Chris Bronze says, a, a, a soft eschatology leads to a hard people. But a strong eschatology leads to a soft people. Right? In other words, right? if you believe and understand and embrace the coming judgment that Jesus will bring, you can be soft towards people. Because you know that God's going to deal with them. 
But if, if you think that they're going to get away with punishment as soft eschatology in the future, you're going to be really hard because you think that it's going to be unjust, it's unfair. Listen, God is going to come, Jesus is going to come, and he's going to mete out his judgment in great fairness. And the message you need is that, that Jesus is coming to take his kingdom, he's coming to rule, he's going to deal with those who have done wrong. And if you don't understand the joy, the message of judgment upon those who hate Christ, it's because you've not faced unjust persecution in the hand of his enemies. Remember Paul? He said, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. He said, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Paul didn't have to repay him. He said, you know what? God will deal with that. I could be soft. So likewise, those in Revelation... I faced hardship, and the message then of judgment comes with joy. And I fear that us in America, we, we miss the core message book of Revelation because we're people at ease. We don't know what it was, but John wasn't at ease, nor were the churches. John shared in their tribulation. And then the last half of verse 9, John puts forth why he was suffering or where he was. He says, I was in the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So let's go back again to our, our map. We see Patmos right there being an island. That's why he probably wrote to these churches, because it was just off the coast. Not so far, actually. It's just across the water. And those on the, the island could have, have gotten there. But you need to have a, a boat in order to get there. But see, Patmos was a penal colony. A barren, volcanic island that was used for political prisoners of Rome. And, and, and John just couldn't go to these churches because he was a, a political prisoner and he didn't have a boat to take him there. And he was under Roman guard. And, and the best comparison that I can have for Patmos today is this island. What's this island called? It's Alcatraz. Right? It's a, it was a maximum security federal penitentiary. Now it's a, a national park. How many have been to Alcatraz? Kind of an interesting time in there. It housed the worst of America's criminals beginning in the 1930s. And if you go there, right, just tell stories about prison life, you just kind of imagine what it would be like. It's not, it's not pleasant. But what made Alcatraz particularly so bad was the, that freedom was in sight. Alcatraz, just a mere one and a quarter miles from San Francisco, yet the cold temperatures of the waters, the swirling currents in the San Francisco Bay made escape difficult. If you get out of your cell, right, and there's rumors about that movie, um, I forget who started it, what escape from Alcatraz, whether they escaped or not, we, we don't know. But this was true in John's time. John was a prisoner upon this island, right? He could see the mainland, right? But escape would be difficult. It would require a, a long swim. But we see in verse 9 why he was a prisoner. He says, I, John, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. This was John being persecuted for being a witness for Christ. John was applying the message of the book of Acts, right? To be my witnesses. And he was one of those witnesses and he was being persecuted for it. He was a political prisoner. He was preaching the gospel. He was telling the Jews that Jesus is your Messiah, you missed him. You crucified him. Listen, but God raised him from the dead, so believe in him. You get a forgiveness of sins. And they hated that fact, and they told the Romans, and they persecuted him, and he was, he was there on the island. Even though he was telling them good news about Jesus Christ buried, raised from the dead, 
That we might escape death. We might escape our sins. We might enjoy eternal life with God. That wasn't good enough. Persecuted as a criminal. And while suffering on this island as a criminal, we see John actually taken to another place. If you look at verse 10, it says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. In the Spirit on the Lord's day. It was the Lord's day. That's probably Sunday. And he was in the Spirit. In the book of Revelation, this, this phrase is used four times. Chapter 4, verse 2, 17, verse 3, and 21, verse 10. And every time, right, in this, besides this instance, John mentioned how he was in the Spirit and he was carried away to see some other vision. He was in the Spirit and he was carried away someplace. And my guess is that he experienced something here. Physically, oh, he's still on the island, right? But in his Spirit, he was some other place. And he went to God's theater, and God showed him some things and revealed him some things that he then saw. And what was he supposed to do the things he saw? He was still supposed to write them out. He was in the Spirit, taken in a dream. A little bit like Paul, right when he had his revelation, taken in the Spirit. He was probably there, but somehow in a dream or in a vision or somehow God was taking him someplace to see this, that he would write it down. And in this case, it wasn't so much a vision that started. It was with a, a sound, a loud sound coming from behind him, as it says in verse 10, a, a loud voice like a trumpet. Now, I, I thought about trying to give you an example of what a loud voice like a trumpet is. I, I, don't, I don't know. My loud voice doesn't sound much like a trumpet. Okay, it, it just doesn't. But somehow, John is there. He hears this loud voice proclaiming like a, a trumpet saying... Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And then in verse 12, right, we, we see John telling us what he saw. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. I turned to see this, this sound. And he didn't see the voice. Upon turning, he says, verse 12, on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. The, the eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in full strength. This, dear, dear friends, is a majestic vision of Jesus that he saw. And if you're looking for a, a point to hang your thoughts on, this is John's vision of Jesus. And, and how even do you begin to describe these words? They're, they're stunning, breathtaking taking resplendent majesty of, of Jesus. It's curious. In the Gospels, in all four Gospel accounts, we are given no information about the physical appearance of Jesus. None. Um, we know nothing about His height or His weight or His hair color or His beard or His nose or his eyes. But here we're given a physical depiction of Jesus. <clears throat> you put them all together, you get something like this. This is an artist trying to do this. <clears throat> Here's a man standing. 
got seven lampstands. He's got a long robe. He's got a golden sash around his chest. He has white hair that's like wool. You see his beard. I think that's trying to show that it's a little bit like wool. His eyes flash with flames of fire. His right hand are seven shiny objects that look like stars. He has a, a sword coming out of his mouth. His face is shining bright. And, and that's, that's a bit what John sees. Now, there's some things in this picture that is not represented, like his feet of burnished bronze. Right? The picture just was cut off. Um, we don't hear the voice. It was like a trumpet. We don't, we don't hear that. And, and the picture really can't capture his face, which John said was shining like the sun in full strength. Which, by the way, shows how this is, this is not reality. Like a, a sun shining. If, if his face was like sun, you, you couldn't see his robe or his hands. right? Because you can't look at the sun like that. But that's something similar to what Jesus sees. But here. It would be wrong of you to say this is what Jesus looks like. Just like political cartoons. Right? I mean, this vision of John, I mean, it kind of looks like a political cartoon, does it not? I mean, it, it's, it's just like those I've shown you. And yet, this is what John saw, to be sure. But this is not what Jesus looks like any more than a two-headed donkey is what Democrats look like. It's just not, not reality. That, that's not how you handle apocalyptic literature. This is a symbolic representation of Jesus that's meant to give you an impression. That's the idea. In, in this way, right? The, the Monet's painting of sunrise impression that I showed you at the beginning of my message this morning. It was a sunrise. Just to give you that impression. It's not an iPhone picture where you're trying to get all the reality. It's supposed to give you an impression, a, a representation of nothing else but that rising sun in the midst and that boat in the forefront. Likewise here, the division that John relates is supposed to make an impression upon us. And what sort of impression does this make upon us? It stuns us. It's power. It should overwhelm us. It should show us that Jesus is the powerful one. Catch this. The one who is capable of bringing out all the judgments in the book of Revelation. Everything he promises to do in the book, this guy is able to do it. There should be no doubt in our minds of what that is. And we even saw that last week about looking at Jesus and, and God in verse 7. He's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Right? We begin with Jesus. We might not miss Jesus. And we begin with Christ and the great power that he is. Now, you can go into the symbolism of all these things, right? Jesus is wearing a priestly robe with a, a golden sash, just like the priests of the Old Testament did. Exodus 28, verse 4 speaks about that. He's got white hair, you know, respect of society. Gray hair is a crown of glory. It's gained by a righteous life, and the righteous life of Jesus certainly gained that. He has eyes of fire that, that penetrate deep into our souls. He holds the stars, just like the Lord marked out the heavens with a span, his face is like the sun, like the Lord who dwells in unapproachable light. 1 Timothy 6, verse 16. But in all of this, I, I do fear you might stretch things too far. As if trying to argue right, specific strokes of Monet's painting. Well, this stroke represents this, and this stroke represents that. You, you might be misled in that way. Though there are some things, though, of this 
majestic and mighty Jesus that that it's used again. In fact, when we get to chapters two and chapter three, we we see John pulling up one of the images of, of Jesus, right? Just as it's particularly appropriate to those um, in the churches, right? Like, for instance, for the church in Ephesus, who are cold in their love, Jesus, he reminds them that Jesus is the one who walks among the lampstands and can remove the lampstand. Ephesus, your lampstand could be removed. Or the church at Smyrna, who's facing intense persecution, may well suffer death. Jesus reminds them, or John reminds them, Jesus does, that he's the one that conquered death. In Pergamum and Thyatira, John reminds them of the sharp sword coming out of his mouth and the burning eyes, both of which perhaps denote displeasure and a sharpness of his words. But in all of this, I, I do believe that, that we're supposed to have an impression. And again, if, like last week, if you know the Old Testament, there's a passage that comes screaming through. What passage of the Old Testament is saying is referenced here? Anyone know? I think the Jews, I think the Jews to whom he was writing knew. It shows our biblical illiteracy that we need to know our Old Testaments much better than we do. Here it is. Verse 13, which says, And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man. And where in the Old Testament does it talk about the Son of Man coming? In the book of Daniel. I want to read some things from from Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. I saw the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Daniel chapter 7, 9 through 10. Listen, so I looked. Daniel says, and by the way, right, Daniel is much like John. He's going to look and he's going to tell you what he sees. He says, I looked, and thrones were placed. The Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and thousands, thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. The picture of what's going on here. The picture that John tells of these biblically literate people, they think back, oh, the Son of Man is coming and he's, he's clothed in this way. He's coming to judge. Thousands are around His throne serving Him and tens of, tens of thousands are being judged. This is a judgment scene. This is a powerful judge. In Daniel chapter 10, again, Daniel says this, I lifted up my eyes and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist his body was like barrel, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Does that sound familiar? It does. And the details aren't quite the same. The impression is the same. And Greg Beale says that this vision given to Daniel is, quote, to reveal the divine decree that Israel's persecutors would assuredly be judged. Like those who are persecuting me, they're going to be judged. Exactly the message that John's readers need to hear. That he's the king, he's going to judge. In fact, it all brings us back to the fact that Jesus has dominion. We opened our service, uh, I read John, uh, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. And I saw in the night visions, behold... 
with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one which will not be destroyed. The sovereignty of Jesus coming. The purpose of the vision that John saw. He may have been meek and mild, Jesus was, during his days upon the earth. Oh, he got angry and cleansed the temple, for sure. Right? He fought strong and hard against the Pharisees. But in general, he was meek and mild to receive sinners who confessed their sins to himself. But in contrast to how he walked the earth, he's coming again to judge the world and he's coming again to establish the throne of his kingdom. That's what this vision represents. It's the impression that we ought to get from this vision. And we have every reason to take comfort in this. Because Jesus is on our side. He's the one who died for our sins. He's the one who loves us. He cares for us. Brings us really a final point here this morning. We've seen John's commission to write. We've seen his vision of Jesus. And now John's comfort from Jesus. And there's the comfort that receives from this vision. When, when John saw this vision, he responded like every other prophet encountered the presence of God. Isaiah, when he saw God on his throne, he was broken, beating his chest. Woe is me, I'm undone. Ezekiel, likewise, was wiped out at seeing the presence of God. Manoah and his wife, the father of Samson, father and mother of Samson, right? They're broken when the angel of the Lord appeared to them. When God appeared before Moses, right? He, he was broken. Take off the sandals from your feet. The place you're standing is holy ground. And there was some terror there. And so likewise with John, he was overwhelmed with the presence of God Recognizing God as God and John recognized himself as man when I saw him, verse 17. I fell at his feet as though dead. That's the response. That's the impression. Christ is so glorious that we see him in his glory, we will fall dead before him. But, Here's the comfort. He laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not. I'm the first and the last and the living one. And I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. What comfort Jesus is bringing here to John. John felt dead. But Jesus shows his care, tenderly placing his right hand upon him. Comforting him, saying, Fear not, John. As Isaiah says, do not fear, for I am with you. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I am your God. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He says, fear not, John. I am the first and the last. We saw these verses last week from verse 8. The Alpha and the Omega. That's who the Lord God is what Jesus is saying here. They echo back to the words the Lord spoke to Isaiah three times. He says, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. He says, do not fear. Like, I'm the only God. I'm the first and I'm the last. 
I'm God. I truly am. Verse 18, I'm the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Right, The the contrast here that I'm the living one. Yes, I died, but now I'm living. I'm alive forevermore. And I even have control. I have the keys of death and of Hades. The resurrection that's Easter and all its comfort that it ought to bring to us. Jesus died, yes. But he conquered death. And he has the keys to slam shut the door of death and Hades. And we need not fear what man can do to us. And again, right? This is the message to a man suffering imprisonment on a barren island for preaching the gospel is receiving. Jesus comforts him, telling him not to fear. I'm God. Yes, I was dead, but I've conquered death. And I just say right here that this is the fruit of revelation that we will be able to face persecution and hardship without fear. Because God is with us, because Jesus lays his hand on our shoulders to comfort us. Because our Lord has conquered death, the great enemy of our bodies, we will conquer through faith in him. And again, I mentioned last week, I'll mention it again and again, if revelation, reading of it, and understanding it leads you to fear, totally missed it. It's not what this is about. Yes, God is to be feared, and Jesus is to be dreaded in some sense, and we're supposed to like be in awe of him, but he comes with comfort to us, because we might not fear. And then the commission is reaffirmed in verse 19. Write, therefore, the things you have seen, and those that are, and those that are to take place after this. John is to write what you see. And many have pointed out that this is a rough outline of the book of Revelation, and I agree, right? John is to write the things he's seen, that's chapter 1. He is to write the things that are in chapters 2 and 3, writing to the churches in Asia Minor. This is Jesus' evaluation of those very churches there. And he's to write of the things to come. Revelation is much about the future. It's a book about how the world will end. It will end with God on his throne, with his people in the New Jerusalem. And in the process, we're going to see judgments. We're going to see these seals opened up and these trumpets blown and these, these bowls poured out of the wrath of God coming upon the earth. We're going to see burnings of a third of the earth. We're going to see everything in the sea die. Things are living in the sea right now. It's not all present. It's not happened now. It's it's in the future. But that's what John is supposed to write. He's supposed to write of the the things that were, chapter 1, the things that are, and the things that will be. Just like God was, and is, and is to come. And I say this, this should be great comfort to our souls because he's saying the things that are going to take place. And the things in the future aren't catching God by surprise. It's all under His sovereign power and control. And finally, we see the comfort there in verse 20. It's where we get our political cartoon. We get to put labels on our vision. It's what oftentimes Revelation does. It doesn't do it all the time, but it does, right? Here's the picture that John sees. And he says, okay, verse 20. Ask for the mystery of the seven stars you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the churches. 
this is just like any political cartoon I've shown you, that there's Jesus is the one there. He's got angels in his hand. He's got seven angels, seven stars or seven angels. So they're not literal stars. They're just representing like angelic, shining forth bright ones. And we'll see that each of these angels are assigned to the different churches. And each of those lampstands, like I could have labeled them, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I, I could have done that. Right? But that's, that's the meaning, that's the political cartoon. That's where we're supposed to get away from this. This represents Jesus like, like elephants represent Republicans, like a panda bear represents China. Or like we did a couple weeks ago, like a little guppy fish represents Biden in that picture of the puffer fish consuming. Like this is, this is, this is what John saw for sure, but it's representing Jesus in all his power and his resplendent majesty. And there's comfort for us in this picture. I think that one of the greatest comfort is that Jesus is walking among the churches. He is with us. Jesus said the last word in Matthew's gospel, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And there's Jesus. He hasn't just said, okay, you lampstands, you're on your own. No, he's, he's right there in the midst of, of all the lampstands. And that's the picture we see here. Even when the end is coming, even when the ancient days rise on the scene, Jesus is still walking among the lampstands. He's with us. He has not forsaken us. In this, right, we can take great comfort. And we can pray, as I hope we pray, at the end of Revelation and through Revelation and through the midst of the judgment, right, come, Lord Jesus. That's what we need to pray. So let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that we would get Revelation right, be gracious to us, help us in the confusing things to to see the impression that it's supposed to make. Help us in the political cartoons to... Ascribe rightly what things represent of what you see when we see these, these strange things that we don't understand. Help us to realize there are things that you've hidden and there are things that you've revealed and the things that you've revealed here is just the, the glory and majesty and might of Jesus, our, our high priest, our king, our judge, who will come to set everything right. And Father, I, I pray that even in the midst of revelation, even when we see terrible judgments being poured out upon people and hardness of heart and destruction and you making war that we might realize of God that that this is because you are strong and sovereign that we might not ever forget Revelation chapter 1. It's in the backdrop of everything in Revelation. We serve a mighty risen Christ who is alive forevermore, who has conquered death and Hades. God, that we too, by by faith and trusting in Him and and enduring and pressing on until the end, O God, we we know that by by grace You will give us eternal life as well. So strengthen us, we pray, O God. It's not our might, it's it's not our power, God, but it is by Your Spirit, says the Lord. So strengthen us in these things. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.